you want to grab your Bibles or if you just want to look at the screen, uh, we're back in the Minor Prophets again today. Uh, this time we're looking at Obadiah and we'll be reading the whole book. Obadiah from verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Temen, will be terrified and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Thanks, Jordan.
Well, I wonder if there are any kids tuning in at home who ever fight with their brothers and sisters. You guys don't do that, do you? Never. You guys wouldn't do that at home, would you? They're always nice, always sharing, always sacrificing for the other, always putting the other's needs before your own, I can only imagine. I don't think there'd be any parents who are part of our church who have to deal with fighting siblings, would there be? It was certainly true for my parents. They never had to discipline me for tormenting my younger brother. They never had to settle our disputes. They never had to brandish the wooden spoon. Of course not, ever. And of course, they never dealt with my older sisters borrowing clothes off each other without asking and all the chaos that followed. That never happened. No, there's no such thing, is there, as siblings who don't rival at least a little bit. It is natural. The very first siblings, Cain and Abel, of course, took rivalry to the extreme, didn't they? It's a little bit morbid, but that's how it went. And then, of course, there's Jacob and Esau, a rivalry that started in the womb, a rivalry between two really different personalities, a rivalry that was fueled by the favoritism of their parents, and a rivalry that lasted through the generations. Jacob became the nation Israel and Esau became the nation Edom. And even though the two brothers had somewhat reconciled in Genesis 33, somehow their feud was revived by their descendants and it continued. For example, Edom refused to let Israel pass through their territory when they were on their way to the promised land after Mount Sinai. And instead they attacked them. Uh, Both Saul and David as kings had Uh, fights and battles against the Edomites and for a time would subject them as a nation. And Edom constantly raided Israel and Judah over and over, uh, sometimes with the help of greater nations like Egypt um, and other powers. And you could even say that their descendants are still fighting today, if you were to track it down. Theirs was what uh, Ezekiel calls an ancient hostility or an ancient grudge in Ezekiel 35. And by the way, uh, Ezekiel 35 as a whole chapter is another great bit of background for this feud. You could read that later on. But before we dive into the judgment against Edom through the prophet Obadiah, it's worth considering this warning that grudges are terrible, sinful things. All you have to do is watch the miniseries on the Hatfields and McCoys in 19th century American South. Or consider the Protestant-Catholic rivalry in Ireland's recent history. Or think about the Hutu and Tutsi peoples of Rwanda, uh, which erupted in civil war and genocide in the 90s. It's everywhere. The list is endless of how these grudges and hostilities get worse. They're like infections that fester and, and spread and, and poison all the people involved on through the generations, cycle after cycle. And so it's worth asking ourselves, am I holding any grudges at this time? Is there someone that I need to forgive and reconcile with? Because you can be sure that your grudge will affect the people around you very negatively. 
So Obadiah addresses this hostility between Edom and Israel, particularly in judgment against Edom because of the way that the feud erupts. Uh, God has to come and to step in and to discipline them because of it. And so while this book is a judgment on Edom and is very much a warning to them as a people for the punishment that's coming their way, it's also meant to be a comfort to Israel as they see God step in to enact justice and come to their defence and right the wrongs that were done to them. And that makes it a little different to the message of Amos, which we looked at last week. In Amos, Israel were seeking the comfort of judgment on their enemies so that they could, you know, smugly sit there with satisfaction. But actually, they were hypocritically ignoring their own sin and injustice. This time, Israel have been victims and God is comforting them by putting things right. And the distinction, I think, is very much helped by the time frame. Amos was set in a pre-exile, prosperous Israel when they were oppressing others, namely the poor and the marginalised. Whereas Obadiah is likely written for a post-exile, conquered Israel who are themselves being oppressed. There's a little bit of guesswork in that because we don't know much about Obadiah. Uh, It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, that's one thing. Uh, but there's very little said about him as a prophet. And yet there are other passages like Ezekiel 35 and others that do help us with uh, this time frame, as we'll see. And so the prophecy of Obadiah highlights to us two reversals that God accomplishes. Two ways that he turns the tables. Two ways that he writes wrongs. And the first of these is that he turns Edom's pride against themselves. You might remember at Easter we talked about um, this reversal when we considered the mockers around Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, that the, the, the shame that they directed at Jesus as he hung on the cross, God actually reversed that and put it back on them uh, for the truth that they unknowingly spoke, you know, oh, King of the Jews was actually true, but also for the salvation that Jesus achieved through their act of murder. And so in the same way God reversed that shame, he reverses this pride of Edom's. Verses 2 to 4 are are the perfect example of what it says in Proverbs 16 verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. See, the Edomites lived up in in higher country, uh, geographically speaking. Uh, They were to the southeast of Israel, as we saw, and they would look down on the Jordan Valley and on the plains of Israel. Uh, But because of their ancient feud, they also looked down on Israel, psychologically speaking, you know, with arrogance and with superiority. We're better than these people. And so God is determined to bring them down in in both ways, really, to humble them, to knock them off their perch, to take them down a peg, because that's what God does with the proud. And not just Israel's enemies, he often did that with Israel themselves, as we saw last week. He would humble them in their pride. C.S. Lewis says that 
pride is really the sin that is at the heart of all other sin. It's pride that makes us want to take God's place. It's pride that rejects Him and demands that we run our own life. It's pride that fuels rivalries and all other sin. But God will always humble the proud. Always. And so it's worth identifying your own pride and ideally ripping it savagely from yourself like the tumour that it is. Where is your pride rejecting God's rule or taking his place? Where is it causing grudges or hostility? Where is it blocking forgiveness? It's a tumour. It needs to be removed. But what is it that Edom actually did to Israel that warranted God's specific punishment? What were their actions? Well, when Judah and Jerusalem were being conquered and destroyed by Babylon in the 6th century BC, uh, which was a destruction ordained by God for a, as a punishment against his people's rebellion, uh, Edom came in like scavengers and they pillaged, they stole, they killed during that chaos. Uh, both Psalm 137 and uh, Ezekiel 35, as well as Obadiah, highlight that exploitation. How they took advantage by victimizing victims. Uh, they were like vultures coming in over the defeated. Uh, the should nots, there's, there's a number of should nots that we read in verses 11 to 14. And they highlight all the things that Edom did on Israel's day of disaster or trouble or destruction. It calls it that in numerous different ways. And it's a bit like the picture I used last week of an older sibling taking joy in the uh, punishment of a younger sibling. But instead of just standing there smugly and gloating, they do more than that. They actually then go and, and play with the younger sibling's toys and they break their stuff and they eat all their snacks and they do whatever else that they can find to kick that younger sibling while they're down. That's Edom. And what would the parent do in that situation? They wouldn't just give the, the you should know better lecture. There would have to be some re repercussions. Maybe sent to the room without dinner. Maybe the, the toys of the older kid given to the younger. Maybe uh, no TV for a week or whatever else it might be. Balance has to be restored, doesn't it? Justice has to be served. Rights, uh, wrongs, sorry, need to be righted. And isn't this what God is all about? Our loving parent. And so in both Obadiah and Ezekiel, he makes it clear that Edom will be repaid for the harm they have done. That as they did to Israel, so it would be, would be done to them. That God would restore balance and justice would be served. He will right the wrongs that are done to his people. So consider with me, Another passage in the Old Testament, this time from Isaiah chapter 63. 
also about Edom. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bosra, which is one of the main towns in Edom, uh, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. And this is ultimately a picture of Jesus, the judge who comes to fulfill justice and right all wrongs in the world. For his shame was reversed, as we mentioned, and he became a conquering victim, so to speak. And so for those who belong to him, he will offer vindication, and all those who are enemies will be dealt justice. It will prevail. And there is comfort in that. For if any of us share his compassion and mercy with the world around us and then receive ill treatment for it, his justice will prevail. If we humbly forgive other people and turn the other cheek as he commands us to and then they take advantage of us, Jesus' justice will prevail. If we feel robbed of freedom or dignity in any way, shape or form, His justice will prevail in the long run. Although last week's warning still stands that we must always be considering our own sin and pride and judgmentalism and hypocrisy. But Jesus will right those wrongs. God humbles the proud and punishes wickedness. But of course, if we stop and think about that, it puts all of us in a predicament, doesn't it? As we said last week, we are all guilty. As we saw this morning, we are all guilty. All people, all nations, every one of us. And if you go to verse 15 of Obadiah, you see how how the scope expands to this all people. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. And we get a very interesting picture of that actually in Revelation when we see the judgment of Babylon, which represents all of God's enemies. And Babylon were the ones who actually went and conquered and exiled Israel, uh, Judah at the time. But it's scary stuff, isn't it? As you have done, it will be done to you. And if you're sitting there at home and you're thinking, well, what have I done this past week that might be repaid to me in kind? In what ways have I wronged others or wronged God that will be repaid and come back on my own head? For all nations and all people, the day of the Lord is near. This is the day we've talked about in Joel and in Amos, the day of reckoning, or as we just read, the day of vengeance, or as we read in the New Testament, the day of judgment. The day when all wickedness will be repaid in kind, when all sin will be held 
to account. And remember, we are all people, those of all nations. We are the Gentiles who are deserving of judgment and justice. And that means originally, we are the ones who should be destroyed in God's righting of wrongs and not the ones who should be vindicated or redeemed. But this is where the second reversal comes. When God turns judgment back into salvation. When the exclusion of all nations becomes the inclusion of all nations. See, at first the triumph at the end of this book is all about the subjugation and the the, the occupation, the complete conquering of Edom and how Israel will possess their land and they will govern the Edomites and they'll take over completely. But if we keep referring back to previous prophets and even just to Amos, which we looked at last week, we can see a bigger picture. In Amos chapter 9, verse 12, Edom is mentioned. And it, says, uh, it talks about Israel possessing the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear God's name. So it's not just occupation and subjugation, it's actually salvation and inclusion. That Edom could be one of these many nations who are included in the New Testament church. A remnant of Edom will be saved along with a remnant of Israel. And of course, then if you go back another book to Joel, he talks about the Spirit being poured out on all people and the salvation of all who call on his name, not just Israelites, all. And Pentecost fulfills that prophecy completely. The Spirit poured out on people from all nations, empowering them to understand the Word in their own language. And the prideful act of Babel reversed. Balance restored, wrongs righted. I wonder if any of the kids here at home can think of two other siblings in a story in the Bible. Uh, Two brothers, to be precise. That should be a little bit of a giveaway. It's the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke 15. And this story is a, a classic move of Jesus to to somewhat show the tables being turned, to reverse some things. So Israel, who are used to seeing themselves as, as like the younger, victimized sibling, they're now portrayed in this story as the older, arrogant, legalist sibling. That it's their pride that will not accept the forgiveness of rivals and the redemption of the wayward. That it's their pride that puts them stubbornly against the inclusion and the celebration of the repented lost. Yes, for Israel, Obadiah's message could be taken just as a comfort for them because their enemies are judged. And in many ways, you do have to stretch it to see this second reversal. But that stretching is what we call God's redemptive historical plan. It is the New Testament. A big reversal. 
And Obadiah may have been placed directly after Joel and Amos for this purpose. After all, it's likely a post-exilic book which would have fit a lot better later in the canon in the Old Testament. But here it is. And the talk of a restored people in God's name, not just Israelites, but Edomites and other nations too, that's as New Testament as it comes, isn't it? You know, it's, it's Pentecost. It's the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. And of course, it's the new Jerusalem in which gathers a multitude from every tribe and nation and people and language. Is Edom included in that? Of course. So they were a sibling nation to Israel who represent the wickedness and the judgment of all nations, who represent us. But they also represent the hope of salvation and inclusion for all nations too. As Obadiah finishes, deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. That's the note that he finishes on, the kingdom. The kingdom of God, not just the kingdom of Israel. This is the kingdom of God. The kingdom that Jesus came and proclaimed. said, repent for the kingdom is near. The kingdom that he deliberately extended to all people, including you, including me. All by his grace. The kingdom that really defined, or is defined by the new Jerusalem. The new Mount Zion, where there is no more rivalry or hostility or feuds. Perhaps I can wrap up with this summary. When God puts wrong things right, that is his justice. But when God makes wrong people right, that's his mercy, isn't it? And that's not to say that his mercy and his justice disagree or that his mercy is somehow unjust because his judgment instead is carried out on Jesus. And so Jesus is actually at the centre of both of these reversals. He comes as the judge who will judge the living and the dead. Who, who restores balance and destroys sin and rights all wrongs. But he also comes as the one who takes that judgment on himself. And all that blood that stains his clothes ultimately is his own. He dies in our place so salvation can be offered to all people. And it's worth noting, I think, because we read from Isaiah 63 before, that judgment is a day and redemption is a year. And we see that theme subtly throughout Scripture. That yes, there will be a day of judgment, symbolic of a finite time when sin is held to account and finally dealt with. But afterwards, a year of favour of redemption, symbolic of an infinite time of peace and perfection and purity. God puts 
wrong, wrong things right by his justice and makes wrong people right by his mercy. Praise Jesus for that eternal salvation. Why don't we pray? Father, once again, we thank you for the entirety and the epic nature of your grand story of redemption. The way that in your mercy and your sovereign grace, you work through your people, through weak, sinful people, even at times through enemies, to achieve your purpose, which ultimately is Jesus Christ and the good news of salvation for sinners. Lord, we thank you that your justice is true and that we can take great comfort in knowing that all wrongs will be righted in the long run. That Lord, whenever we see injustice, we know that you have a plan to restore balance. And Lord, ultimately that would include us for destruction, but we thank you that in Jesus you've reversed judgment and offered salvation. That you promised to us life, eternity, perfection, inclusion, and unity with a huge multitude of people saved out of all nations. And you do it all by your grace in Jesus. We thank you that he comes as the judge of all the earth. But he comes as a conquering victim who has gone to the cross for us. And who saves us by taking our punishment upon himself. Lord, it is amazing grace that we find in Christ. And we pray that it might impact us and our lives and that we might share this amazing grace for the inclusion of all nations in your kingdom. For the kingdom is yours. The glory is yours. The power is yours. Now and forever. Amen.